Blog Talk Radio. Welcome one and all. This is Robert Rogers, the founder of Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. Parkinson's Recovery is dedicated to identifying all sorts of natural options that are providing ways for individuals diagnosed with Parkinson's disease to get relief from those symptoms. I have interviewed now 250 remarkable individuals on Parkinson's Recovery Radio over the last decade. And these particular shows, which incidentally are all available to listeners for replays, have revealed many, many exciting and wonderful natural therapies that uh, we're discovering are really making a huge difference. One topic... I have to confess, even though it's been a long decade, that I have somewhat ignored, and yet a topic that, as it turns out, is really the most important when it comes to healing from the inside out, turns out to be sleep. I know many individuals diagnosed with Parkinson's disease who I've interviewed over the years have struggled profoundly with being able to get sustained sleep. And of course, that's the key to healing from the inside out. Now, there is my guest today, who is, I just want to report, an amazing individual, a neurologist, who really has ground-breaking perspectives on what really it takes for a person to begin to experience healing of the neurological symptoms that they currently experience. I had the pleasure of uh, having lunch with Dr. Gominick uh, several months ago. She is a quite fascinating individual who I think you will soon discover has some insights that will knock the socks off of you, so to speak. So what I want to now do is, it is a pleasure and a great honor for me to thank you, Dr. Stasha Gominick, for taking the time to be a guest on Parkinson's Recovery Radio today. Well, Robert, thank you so much for inviting me, and it's my pleasure uh, to be included. And I have a lot of things to share with your audience, whether they have Parkinson's disease or they have a family member who they're interested in helping. Tell us all about yourself. Okay. I'm a neurologist. I've been practicing in East Texas for the last 14 years. I'm uh, very interested in sleep, and it turns out that I became interested in sleep through my daily headache sufferers, but soon after realizing that if I could get the sleep better, the headaches would get better, I began to be very interested in the sleep disorders of Parkinson's disease, and the way that that came about is that I had a Parkinson's expert down the hall from me who, when he realized I was doing a lot of sleep studies on my young, healthy headache patients, said, I'm so interested in why you're doing all these sleep studies because we're starting to get articles published that show that when the patient walks in the door at age 80 with Parkinson's disease, if you have a sleep study from 20 years prior, their sleep studies will be abnormal. So I thought, oh, well, I have a lot of Parkinson's disease patients in my practice, and I'll do sleep studies on them too. Now, let me give you a little background. I had no formal training in sleep, but I'm a neurologist. I've been practicing for 30 years. And no one is really concentrated on Parkinson's disorders of sleep. So I didn't have much to go on except for the fact that the the sleep studies are abnormal 20 years prior. So because I was, and Robert, interrupt me any time. I get very excited about this because I think it's really interesting. So I got got, uh, into the habit of asking first my headache patients and then my epilepsy patients and then my vertigo patients, and then now I wanted to ask the Parkinson's patients to go do a sleep study so we could see what their sleep was like. And I had moved into asking the Parkinson's patients, after about a year or two of asking my other patients, and none of them would go. And I was struck by that because they all said the same thing, I sleep fine. And I thought, well, that's interesting. They think they sleep fine, but they had a sleep disorder 20 years ago, 
what does that mean? And I would, so over a period of about six months to a year, there were several interesting things that happened. One, I realized that they, the patients who already had Parkinson's disease, who clearly had diagnosable movement disorder, would answer the sleep questions in a very characteristic way. They would say, I don't have anything wrong with my sleep. And I would say, well, are you tired in the morning? No. And then if the wife accompanied them on one of the appointments, she would say, well, if you're not tired, why do you fall asleep right after breakfast? And he would say, I do not. And she would say, you do too. And they would argue about it, which was very odd because it was as though the exact same conversation had happened in the same way in three of my other Parkinson's patients. And, and I had already been asking so many people about their sleep that I thought it was very peculiar that here was a person who falls asleep after breakfast but does not realize they're asleep. And, and it's not that they're not paying attention. There's something peculiar about that because all of us, when we regain consciousness, have a little bit of a memory of being drowsy before we fall asleep or we regain consciousness and we wonder what happened to us. So, for instance, this particular presentation tells us things about the chemistry of what's going on in a person with Parkinson's disease. Now, the other interesting thing was I know that they had a a sleep disorder 20 years ago. Does that mean that the lack of dopamine over the last 20 years is now making their sleep better? Or does that mean that dopamine is what makes us feel tired and does that mean that this person is actually still has a sleep disorder but doesn't know it? So there are many questions prompted by that. And ultimately, I began to, one, send some of my Parkinson's patients for sleep studies. But more importantly, as I got better at treating sleep, I began to use medications to try to see if we could get the Parkinson's disease better by getting the sleep better even if the patient didn't think there was anything wrong with their sleep. You know, I, I can't blame any of my patients for saying, I sleep fine. In fact, I was asleep in your waiting room. So from their point of view, going for a sleep study is ridiculous. You know, and many of the patients say, you just want to put one of those devices on my face. Well, I see no reason to fight with my patients to make them do a sleep study, but I'd still like to see if I could get them better by using a technique that might improve their sleep. Now, what I learned was if the patient thinks their sleep is fine, then there has to be another, a different endpoint. So what I started to concentrate on was, okay, we're going to see if we can get you to heal your body and actually make more dopamine in your own brain. Robert, I love what you said about healing from the inside out because the only thing that we ever do for Parkinson's disease is we give fake dopamine, just give dopamine during the day. We concentrate completely on the movement disorder. Dopamine is a pivotal player in allowing our brain to transition into various phases of sleep. So I thought, why aren't we giving dopamine at night? And what, what, what if I could make the brain sleep better so it would actually make its own dopamine, and then they wouldn't have as much, they wouldn't eat as much of mine during the day. And I began to see many of my patients get better, and then I started to do different things. I started to treat, treat the sleep differently, with the end point for the Parkinson patient being, okay, I want your wife to notice whether or not you fall asleep during the day anymore. Not because that's so important, but because it turned out if I could get them to be awake all day, and active, it was a great measure of how much dopamine was washing around in their brain during the day, and their tremor got better, and their walking got better, too. I'll stop for a minute and let you ask me any other questions you might have. I'm curious about your comment that people are not aware that they have a sleep problem, that when when asked, they say, no, I sleep really perfectly well. So how does a person tell that their sleep is abnormal? That's, that's a great question. And I've puzzled over that for the longest time because I felt, I felt like, well, if, 
if these are the only people in my practice who say I sleep fine, and that's not completely true. There's about 10% of my Parkinson's patients who can't sleep, but it's relatively rare. Most of the time, they fall asleep sitting in a chair. They don't fall asleep behind the wheel. They don't fall asleep when they're walking. They don't have narcolepsy per se where they can't fight off this urge to sleep. What they have is a tendency to drift off when they're sitting relaxed um, and they're not doing anything. Okay, so that's a really that's an important thing, number one. Number two, they don't seem to perceive it as sleep per se, and that turns out to be important at the end. But in actual fact, how do any of us know our sleep is normal? We really have very little to go by. We have, do I feel tired when I wake up? Now, what if dopamine makes us feel tired? I happen to have restless legs. I have to take what's called a dopamine agonist. I take Mirapex. It's a medicine that's sometimes been used in Parkinson's disease. It acts like dopamine. It's not exactly the same. But if I take that at the wrong time and I have to stay awake, I feel horrible when that kicks in. I feel so tired. It's as though I can't move my body. And that same feeling when I have it for my own medicine, I think, golly, this is what it, what it feels like when I don't get the dose just right for my Parkinson's patients when they're taking their Cinemet. It's too high or it's too low, and they just feel like their limbs are so heavy they can't stay up. So one of the interesting observations is dopamine might be the thing that makes us feel tired in the morning. So if the dopamine level is still high in the part of our brain that is really calling out to us saying, we haven't finished yet, go back to sleep, we have all these duties to perform that we haven't finished, dopamine may be the way we feel tired. Now, what that implies is if you have a disease that, that slowly over time leads to less and less dopamine, particularly in the brainstem, where the brainstem runs sleep, the brainstem allows us to get into these healing phases, if you don't have enough dopamine, it may be that you don't go into those phases of deep sleep and you don't feel tired when you wake up. Now, I, don't, I haven't proved that, but that was an idea in my head. So, one, in answer, in general, most of us only know our own sleep, our partner's sleep, and our family's sleep. And my other experience has been working with children that children who've always slept badly think that it's normal to be tired when they wake up. So you have to be careful how you phrase the questions. So how do I know if my sleep is normal? Well, now Fitbits are, are popular, um, and they tell you whether or not you move in sleep. They really don't tell you what phase of sleep you're in. They extrapolate whether or not you're moving or not. Now, the other thing I noticed in my Parkinson's patients was they would frequently say, I sleep great. In fact, I wake up in exactly the same position that I went to bed in. Well, that also, you can interpret that as being sleeping like a rock, but in actual fact, it's not good for you. It turns out that what we do with that dopamine when we have the right amount is we roll over in between phases. So there were so many things that the Parkinson's patients spontaneously told me that I thought, well, that's interesting. That means that they don't have enough dopamine to really roll over between phases. Because I couldn't get most of them to go get sleep, uh, sleep studies, I really had two sets of data. I had the studies that were showing, oh, we've been doing sleep studies for about 30 years now, and this all started in my practice about 10 years ago. So when my colleague came in and said, we're starting to see these sleep studies that were abnormal 20 years ago, that puts a little idea in your head that, gee, maybe there's a sleep disorder that starts 20 years before I get Parkinson's disease, and it's not just doesn't just happen to me. It happens because my brain is not able to repair normally. It's not healing from the inside out. And slowly over a period of 20 years, my manifestation of not healing my movement centers, my basal ganglia, is that I become low in dopamine. That's when the doctors focus because throughout my career, we've only had one intervention for, for Parkinson's. We just treat the symptoms. We treat the movement disorder. But in actual fact, 
that's an end stage. What if we thought of this as, gee, is there a sleep disorder that's there 20 years before? And what if I could treat that sleep disorder? Could I prevent the development of the disease? And I feel that I feel strongly that that is actually the case. And the reason why I got, there are two reasons why I got to the point of really being insistent about it. So I, I got in the habit of saying, look, I know you don't think you sleep badly, but what if, what if you go along with what I'm going to suggest to you, which is actually mostly vitamin-based, and we may actually cover that in a different interview because it's a little bit long, but the technique that I was using with all my other patients to get their sleep better and therefore their headaches better, their epilepsy better, is all vitamin-based because of certain vitamins that are deficient in the population that affect their sleep. So I would try to coerce the Parkinson's patients into saying, well, I understand that you feel fine, but what if I could get you to take these vitamins and see if over time you could come off your cinnamon? You wouldn't need it anymore because your walking would go back to normal and your tremor would go back to normal. What would you think about that? More importantly, what if as you were doing that, you weren't losing your memory? You weren't losing your mental acuity because sleep and memory are tightly bound together. So the quote-unquote dementia of Parkinson's disease, in my view, means that the sleep is not normal because that disorder is reversible, at least in my hands, in my practice, and so was the Parkinson's disease. So ultimately, I got really good at fixing patients' sleep with this vitamin regimen, and I started to see patients come back walking normally and getting dyskinesias from their cinnamon. so we would have to take them off the cinnamon. It's not that the final endpoint is just how we walk. Um, once you have severe Parkinson's disease, clearly you'd like to be able to go backwards, and I'm not convinced that severe Parkinson's disease can be reversed, but mild or early Parkinson's disease absolutely can be reversed. I don't think it's reversed by vitamins per se. I think it's reversed by normal sleep. So it's important to understand that one has to get the sleep normal, and judging how that is 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 actually unique for each patient. So in most patients, they'll say, I want your wife to notice whether or not she falls asleep during the day. Each person has to be able to report whether or not their body is doing better, which is a really a, a different way to practice medicine. So the, the patient has to be an active partner in reporting how they feel. Uh, should I stop there and see if you have other questions? Just for clarification, I, can, I suspect that some listeners are thinking, well, she's arguing that I have a sleep problem, but I close my eyes at uh, 10 o'clock at night and I wake up at 8 and uh, I don't really wake up. Are you saying that they still may have a sleep problem because they're not dropping down into those deeper stages of sleep that are required for the true healing to happen? Yes, exactly. And the end point that would be interesting to a Parkinson's patient, and I must state also that I think I probably have a Parkinson's gene, and I'll, I'll get into why I think that is. I began to watch for things like a mild tremor. So I've been practicing for almost 35 years now, and now I look at Parkinson's disease as being on a continuum. We were taught when I was in training that essential tremor which is a tremor that comes out when you do things with your hands and is at the same frequency as the rest of the population. It has a certain frequency of movement. That that tremor was not related to Parkinson's disease. But over the last 35 years, we found that if you have essential tremor during your life, you do have an increased risk of Parkinson's disease. So I would watch for tremor. And what I learned early on when I was treating sleep of my headache patients or stroke patients is they would come back and say, you know, I put on that horrible CPAP device they gave me for my sleep apnea and my tremor went away. And I would go, really? You know, I don't, we don't even have any medicines that reverse that. We have medicines that treat it. They dampen it. So I would watch for other things like, did your walking get better? Did your balance get better? So there were many patients along the way where I was seeing them after a stroke or 
seeing them after a heart attack, and they had secondary features, either tremor or gait disorder or clear Parkinsonism, where when they would go on a CPAP device, so I wasn't coming at it just from Parkinson's disease. They had a, a second risk factor that made them have a sleep study and get on the CPAP device. But you'd see these, frankly, Parkinsonian physical signs go away on CPAP. And that would just fascinate me. And I would think, now, can that mean that this guy's brain is falling into deep sleep and making his own dopamine so that I don't have to give them him that during the day? Because really, what we do every single night, and your question was correct, you can be asleep for 12 hours and have no deep sleep. And it wasn't until I actually had an 18-year-old with daily headache where I had a sleep study on her. She slept for 10 solid hours. She never went into deep sleep. And that means she's going to be meeting me in another 10 years with a stroke. It's only in the deeper phases of sleep that the repair occurs. We do get unconscious. And Parkinson's patients, when most of the time, they don't wake up a lot during the night. And they don't usually have sleep apnea. They don't usually snore. They don't have any of the alerting symptoms that would get their primary physician or even their neurologist to send them for a sleep study. They're usually pretty quiet. They don't move. Well, what if I were to tell you that my patients who were, let's say, eight years old, who kick during the night and have sleep apnea, it's the dopamine that makes that movement happen, that they either get too paralyzed, which means they stop breathing, or they stop getting paralyzed and they start to kick. And dopamine is one of the major neurotransmitters that runs that system. So that could mean that the lack of dopamine is, is taking away our ability to look inside and, and look for the symptoms that we usually use to, to discern a sleep disorder. So, yes, what I'm implying is we know that from the basic science of animals and humans and studying the cells that run our ability to flip into rapid eye movement sleep, flip into slow wave sleep, that those cells use dopamine as one of the absolutely necessary neurotransmitters. We also know that Parkinson's disease, when we look through the pathological progression of the disease, frequently shows up in the brain stem and the areas of the brain stem that control sleep the simple sleep switches. So the patients who say, gee, I sleep like a rock, but you ask them, do you have any dreams? And they say, no, they've lost their, with that chemical going low in the brainstem, not only have they lost their ability to flip into these certain stages, they've lost those signals that we neurologists and doctors have been trained to look for, snoring, apnea, they don't get that. They look really quiet. They don't move. Now, the, ultimately, the reason why I began to think that I really had discovered something that's worth talking to you about was not, not really in the Parkinson patient. It was in the group that have rapid eye movement behavioral disorder. So I'm building up all this experience with the Parkinson's patients, and I'm watching them get better. I'm watching their sleep get better, even though they don't have any complaints. And I've learned to say, okay, what we're going to use as the end point is you won't be tired during the day. With that, you will also move better, you'll use less cinnamon, you'll, and your brain will do better. And that will be our sign that you're actually getting into deep sleep. The flip side of this equation are the people who act out their dreams. So REM, or rapid eye movement sleep behavioral disorder, is a disorder where the person, when they do get into REM sleep, starts to act out their dreams. So they're very physical in bed, they hit their spouse, but they don't usually wake up. So it's a complaint from the spouse, not from the patient. Now, starting with that observation 30 years ago, nobody really knew what to do about it. They still don't. Um, though I'm going to tell you what I do about it now, and I think we can fix it. But about 10 years ago, we started to realize that if you have REM behavioral disorder, you have a one in two chance of developing Parkinson's disease within 10 years. Now, when that, that means that when the patient walks in and says to me, I act out my dreams, the logical thing for me to think is, oh, they must be low in dopamine. So 
I actually tried in two or three patients dopamine at night of various kinds. And it's not unusual for those patients also to have restless legs. So I try Mirapex, I try Requip, the medicines that various people have used that act like dopamine. And I had a terrible lack of success. It didn't work at all. In fact, most of the patients said it made them worse. So as I got into using this particular set of vitamins and one in particular called pantothenic acid, in desperation, in a couple of my patients, I actually, by accident, stumbled into the fact that one of my patients was taking about 10 times more pantothenic acid than I wanted her to. I asked her to stop it, and she started to hit her husband all night long and then couldn't wake up in the morning, and it happened immediately. And so I said, well, that's peculiar. Add it back. So the only difference in that particular patient was that we added back this higher dose B vitamin and her REM behavioral disorder went away in one night. Now, the thing that was really interesting about her was she originally presented not with Parkinson's disease, but comatose. She couldn't wake up during the day. And her, her caregivers had not realized that she was asleep. They just thought she was in a coma, but she would actually fall asleep and they couldn't wake her. And so we got into treating her, what I thought was a primary sleep disorder. And then as she got better over a period of months, she started to have a little tremor. She started to look a little Parkinsonian. Now she was awake during the day, but she looked slightly Parkinsonian. She still had to sleep for 12 or 14 hours. And then as I was doing this vitamin regimen for longer, I began to realize that some of my patients were taking multivitamins with huge doses of bees in them. And they weren't realizing that that was affecting their sleep. So, I demanded that they all bring in their multivitamins. And it turns out that this gal's husband was giving her a milkshake with these large doses of bees. So at this point I said, look, I think that's hurting her. I think it's giving her a tremor, giving her a headache. I made him stop it. And then he called me back two days later and said, she's beating me up all night long. And I said, what do you mean she's beating you up? He said, oh yeah, she's been beating me up in the bed for like, I don't know, since we've been married, first 10 years of our marriage, she started doing that. And what I realized was, I had had two or three patients who presented with what they were told was narcolepsy. They had these horrible feelings of not being able to fight off sleep. When I got that better, they would start acting out their dreams. But they neglected to tell me that that had been there for 20 years. They didn't realize the connection, and frankly, neither did I. But it looks like if you go back to the very first thing I told you, 20 years before I have Parkinson's disease, I'm going to have a sleep disorder. Well, the the next question would be, what kind of sleep disorder? What would you have? Okay. Well, the most extreme is the person who acts out their dreams. Now, because that one lady, when I gave, she went back on the B50 in her milkshake and it completely went away. I then tried it in two or three other patients because the dopamine didn't really do anything. I began to value sleep as a therapy. As, as something more powerful than any drug. You know, again, that healing from the inside out meant that neurotransmitters were being made in the right proportion, in the right place. The brain is way too complicated for humans, even when they study their whole life to know how to do this, to be able to adjust these neurotransmitters in the doses that they need. So if I could get the sleep back in order or get it to improve, then the brain would control the body normally. That was the the general concept in the background. And then as I got into into a way to treat sleep, that's the problem is what do you do? If you only have sleeping pills that don't really duplicate normal sleep, or if you only have a CPAP device, you're not really getting the, you're not fixing the brain. You're not fixing what was wrong. So there was a level of discovery of vitamin D deficiency, that vitamin D has a huge role to play in these cells that make us hibernate or make us go to sleep. So hibernation is really related to the sun and the seasons. Therefore, oh, sleeping is like hibernating. So there's a direct connection between vitamin D levels and sleep. And once I got deeply into that, I realized that Parkinson's disease has a big connection to vitamin D it has a very different presentation. Therefore, if you try to sell 
oh, I'm going to fix you by fixing your sleep. And the natural response is, well, there's nothing wrong with my sleep, so stop bugging me about that. You're not going to get anywhere. If you can present it in a different way and also present literature that suggests, gee, the Parkinson's disease really occurred because you've had a sleep disorder for 20 years, let's talk about what your sleep was like 20 years ago. What you usually find is if the person's 80, when they were 60, they were really tired, they retired, they snored, they may or may not gotten a CPAP now in this day and age, their wife complained that they beat them up, but the patient doesn't really remember that now because over the last 20 years, their sleep has been, become more and more and more solid from their point of view. That doesn't necessarily mean they're repairing their brain, and the only thing I have to prove that is, oh, your brain's not making enough dopamine for you to be able to walk normally and not have a tremor. So that has slowly been changing over time but you haven't noticed it. So it's, it's a very unique disease in that I think that this is the only disease that really makes the sleep disorder completely hidden from the patient. Several listeners have asked me to ask you a very specific question, and the question is this. I wake up five, maybe six times every night and have to pee. It always wakes me up. What can I do about that? Excellent question. Um, I'd like to answer that in the way that it happens with my patients. So, and the important thing to realize is when I got into this sleep, I personally had never had a sleep disorder, but I got to be perimenopausal and I, I stopped sleeping and I would wake up five or six times a night. And if everybody around us is waking up every hour to pee, then it becomes, our perception is that it's normal, okay? So that's observation number one. The second thing was I became so fixated on being able to fix people's sleep that I would say, okay, I just met you because you had a stroke three weeks ago. You've come out of the hospital. We're sending you for a sleep study. I'm putting the CPAP mask on you. I know you have sleep apnea. And many of the patients frequently males, but not always, would say, there's no way I'm going to wear that terrible device because I wake up every hour to pee. There's no way I'm going to be able to do it. So despite that, I would send them to my pulmonologist. He would put the mask on. He would give them a sleeping pill, and they'd come back, and I'd say, well, how are you doing with your CPAP device? And they'd go, oh, it's great. I feel so much better. And i say, do you have to get up to pee? And they'd go, no. Now, what's weird about that? I mean, they're drinking the same amount. Their prostate is the same size. That didn't change. So it turns out, already in the literature, from the 1950s, there's a hormone that we make that is attached to deep sleep. It's only secreted from the brain during deep sleep, and it turns off the production of urine. And it's called antidiuretic hormone. Well, why would we have that? And it turns out we have other hormones that suppress hunger, and suppress bowel movements. Basically, we were designed to turn off those three stimuli so that we would sleep for eight hours. Now, that means if you have another problem that keeps you from getting into deep sleep, then you never make antidiuretic hormone and you make too much urine. And not only do you make a lot, but you make more than you did during the day because as you lie down, all the venous drainage from the legs comes back into the heart. The heart pumps more. It has more intravascular fluid. You have more supply to the kidney, and you actually make a lot of urine. You make more urine. You, so some of my patients would say, you know, I pee once every five hours during the day, and I get up every hour. It was, therefore, extremely difficult to say, what's interrupting my sleep? Is it my bladder? Is it my prostate? Once you understand that vitamin D is a big player here, vitamin D is a large is a big player in the size of the prostate as well. As the D goes down, the prostate gets bigger. So it's not completely untrue that the urologist says, oh, your prostate is too big. You can't empty your bladder. But when the guy puts a CPAP device on and he does empty his bladder, that's evidence against that simple explanation. 
And it's a better explanation because it means, oh, I am actually able to use that observation now to know whether or not you're getting into deep sleep. So that same patient who comes back three or four years later and says, you know, I loved my CPAP device. I used to be able to sleep all the way through the night. Now I, two things happen. I get up to pee more and I have to put it back on. And two, it feels like it's blowing. It's wrong somehow. It feels like it's choking me, like I don't have enough air. And I would learn from the patient telling me this that I have to go send them to the pulmonologist and they have to turn the pressure up. That means this person, even though I'm blowing air in, I'm helping with the fact that their neck is getting too paralyzed in the deeper phases of sleep because that's really what's happening. It's not that their anatomy is any different. That problem with getting too paralyzed in deep sleep is getting worse. And they're not being able to stay in deep sleep and make antidiuretic hormone, and therefore they're now waking up. That means I can use the number of times you get up to pee as a really nice measure of how well you're getting into deep sleep. Interestingly, I found out in my little kids that it's the same cause as bedwetting for bedwetting. You, you fix their sleep. They actually, little kids who bedwet, don't get into deep sleep. They don't get antidiuretic hormone, and they wet the bed. They don't wake up because there's a huge chemical pressure because children are developing their brain before puberty. They don't wake up the way we do, but it's still the same disease. You fix the underlying chemical problem with D and Bs and you get everything corrected, deep sleep comes back, you don't get up and go pee. Now, I have to admit I I have not completely fix my sleep so that I fall asleep and stay asleep. And not all of my patients was I able to get them back to not waking up at all. But that particular complaint, if you deal with it in a different way and say, okay, we don't really know which is first. So we need to evaluate your bladder. And then I got actually quite good at understanding that the bladder dysfunction that happens in men and women as they get older and develop Parkinson's disease is not Parkinson's disease, but it comes from the same vitamin deficiency as the Parkinson's does. So frequently there'll be a bladder, um, a feeling of having to pee all the time, a hypersensitivity of the bladder. That's actually due to a B vitamin deficiency. It's due to panathenic acid and you can fix it. And there were several, there was, um, and, and let me know if I'm getting too far afield for you, Robert. You can always interrupt me. But what happened to me actually was I, I was not an expert in vitamins, and then I happened to fall into the fact that vitamin D was, was um, affecting these cells that were allowing us to fall into deep sleep. So I, I was very focused on what is wrong with all these young, healthy females, teenagers. I'm sending a whole different population of patients to get sleep studies, and what I heard back from the sleep uh, disorders experts was, your patients don't stop breathing, they just don't have deep sleep. And of course, my question was, well, why? And they said, well, we don't have any idea. And they, because they had no idea, they didn't even put it on the report. So most of the doctors look at the front page, and I was only looking at the front page. We've been brainwashed into saying, is there apnea or not? Is there a stopping breathing or not? And it turns out the biggest information is on the second page. How much sleep was there? How much deep sleep was there? That's always reported. But they don't put it on the front page because then I, as a physician, when I get a report saying this 32-year-old woman who's otherwise healthy has no rapid eye movement sleep, then I'm going to pick up the phone and call that guy and say, hey, how come she doesn't have any REM sleep? And he doesn't have a clue. And so now I've got 1,000 patients with no REM sleep. And and this is completely mysterious. No one's writing about it, and I don't have a clue either. But I, I have now this fascination with the idea that I could repay. If if I could get them better, they wouldn't have headaches. They would feel wonderful. I mean, this this is really really important. And then I fall by accident into this literature about vitamin D that runs hibernation and runs sleep. And why why would it be linked to these parts of the brain that? allow us to transition into deep sleep. And then I get pretty good with vitamin D. I get everybody better. And then the whole population starts to slide again. 
watching the patients get better on vitamin D was amazing because vitamin D does not make anyone sleepy. They just start to sleep better. And, it, and it's a hormone, so it takes a long time, and it's very gradual. And, and you get a sense for, oh, we're going backwards, back out of this hole that we've developed over the last 10 years as our sleep has been chipped away slowly over a long period of time, our brain and our body has stopped working. And now we start to work better. So I became completely fascinated with that. At the end of two years, the D stopped working and the sleep started to fall apart again. And then by another weird serendipitous accident, I fell into this vitamin B5 or pancythenic acid literature. And it turns out that when I got into that literature, which is quite old, it's from the 1950s, there were just a couple of articles that said if you can take B5 out of the literature, within two weeks, the patients develop a gait disorder. They, they walk like a puppet. They can't play ping pong. These are, all, these are studies that were done in convicts. It was a laboratory attached to the Iowa State um, Prison. And because it was done in convicts, and it was because it was such a weird set of experimental paradigm where they actually force-fed them with a tube feeding. They did all sorts of things that no one would get by with in our current day and age. But within two weeks, they got burning in the feet, and they couldn't walk normally. And as soon as I read that, I thought, you know, Mr. So-and-so has that. He can't walk, and I've been wondering what's wrong with his walking. He says he's not, he's not weak. And I've been wondering if he had Parkinson's disease. I had a whole population of patients who I would treat with Cinemet because I didn't know what else to do because their walking wasn't normal, but it wasn't, I didn't really understand what was wrong with it. And they would have a hard time telling me about it. And sometimes they would have burning the feet, sometimes not. But I would find that, oh, this is another category that has been kind of hovering around the Parkinson's disease. And what that also means is, there are people who have Parkinson's disease, plain, plain and simple, but also have panathenic acid deficiency and bladder and bowel dysfunction and burning in their feet because they have a B vitamin deficiency. And you have to kind of understand how to use these vitamins because it turns out this B5 and B6 are both vitamins that we've been told you pee them out. No, that's not true. You can overdose with them. And they're dangerous, and they, they can take your sleep away. So there's a whole body of literature about B5 and Parkinson's disease. So depending on how much more time you want to take, I think we could dedicate a whole another podcast to the mutations that cause Parkinson's disease to present and why that's related to these sleep disorders and why it's related to the way I'm thinking about, gee, that 20-year preamble that's really where we should be treating it, not when the Parkinson's disease finally shows up 20 years later. Well, let's set the intention to do that, Dr. Gominet. You're listening to Parkinson's Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Rogers, and my guest is Dr. Stasha Gominet, who is a neurologist. Dr. Gominet, I think what listeners would love to know, speaking on behalf of, I would guess, several thousand who are now thinking, okay, this is fascinating. I didn't know I had a sleep problem, but now I think, boy, she's right. That must be a key to my success with finding relief from my symptoms. What steps can I take right now today? What would you say to them? Well, I would send you to my website. So my website is www.drgomenac.com. G-O-M-I-N-A-K dot com. Now, the problem is I, I don't have a specific site within my website for Parkinson's patients. I have a lot of things that are relevant, and I have a lot of articles there that I think are relevant. But, one, Parkinson's disease is really common, and I don't have enough of me to go around. Um, two, my experience has been, if you say, I'm going to treat your sleep to a Parkinson's patient, they just, they're not interested because they know they don't have a sleep disorder. So I have been, I actually haven't dedicated a specific part of my site, though I plan to do that. And you and I happen to meet and we're actually having this interview a, a little bit earlier than I was 
anticipating. So if you listen to this lecture and you think there are things that apply to you, you really have to delve a little bit more deeply into what do we do while we're sleeping? Is it possible that every degenerative disease that we develop in older years is really a matter of not repairing completely? And it's my belief that every single one of those degenerative diseases is a genetic disease that we can, let's say we have a specific weakness in a certain change in a biology in our biology, but our body is able to substitute or shore up or strengthen whatever weakness that is until our sleep becomes disordered. And it is until then that we actually begin to present with the disease. The genetic mutation has been present since the day we popped out. And I started thinking that way about my headache patients to begin with. But then I had a few patients who had a genetic disorder that leads to staggering. And this is really important for Parkinson's disease because it turns out there are certain subsets uh, where we know the mutation where we can test for a specific genetic mutation throughout the entire family. And we found that two, two brothers may have a regular old Parkinson's disease. They look like Parkinson's, but they have a sister who staggers like a drunk. She doesn't drink alcohol, but her manifestation of that same exact mutation is to stagger. We've never had any treatment for those staggering disorders, and we've always just done the mutation testing and we've you know proudly told someone they had an SCA 28 uh, blah 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 but that doesn't cure the patient and I have two or three of the cerebellar degeneration patients who had their mutation tested who their walking disorder is completely reversed it's gone completely back to normal by fixing the sleep with this vitamin regimen that means you have to focus a little differently and say I'm not really going to this site in order to fix my sleep. I'm going to this site in order to learn how I might use my sleep to fix my Parkinson's disease. On that site, you have access to me, but you also, and I do um, virtual coaching about the, the process that's called Right Sleep, but you have a lot of other resources that teach you about the things that I've learned and how to think about sleep in a certain way. You can also email me from that site with questions, and there's a workbook that I've put together that allows patients to um, work through my technique on their own. I think anyone with Parkinson's disease really would benefit from either hearing this or talking to me directly as well because what you're doing with it is slightly different than in all the other patients, but I've seen it be so effective that when you suggested the uh, in a podcast, I was willing to do it. So there are quite a few resources on Dr. Gominet's uh, website, uh, some papers that she has published, and a download of a, a book that uh, provides some useful and powerful information that regards uh, how you can get better sleep. I want to mention that website address again, but this time slower. It's, of course, www. and then d r g o m i n a k and that's dot c o m and again uh, that's how you can uh, connect in and request a consultation from Dr. Gominick. Uh, and uh, see her publications uh, and get some basic information that might be particularly useful. I also understand, uh, Dr. Gominick, that you're also um, holding a workshop here sometime soon in uh, Phoenix, I believe. Tell everybody about that. That's correct. My passion now is to teach other physicians, other clinicians. They don't have to be physicians, actually. Everything that I do is over-the-counter, so... It's all vitamin-based, and um, my personal belief is vitamins are really good for you if you're deficient. If you need them, then you really need them. Uh, They can hurt you if you don't need them, which is not the way we've been trained about vitamins, at least not the way I was trained. Uh, But it does mean that I can teach any clinician how to use 
these techniques in their patient group. So as wide as, you know, someone who works with um, mentally challenged adults or children, um, how to get their sleep better, how to reverse autism by doing this, all the way to, um, I, I do let lay people who are not clinicians enter these courses if they want to learn about it in more in depth. So the the course is, um, it's designed so that you would actually be able to give advice to others as well. So it teaches you everything that I know in great depth. Um, with the idea that you're going to try to get not only your disease fixed, but you're going to try to help the people, either loved ones or the people around you. It's a two-day course. Um, it's about 12 hours in duration, uh, So there's and there's a lot of reading uh, before the course. It's going to be held in Phoenix. The next one is in Phoenix at a really beautiful resort on uh, May 12th and 13th. And you can sign up for that course by going to my website, and you go to the menu section that says for clinicians, and that leads you into the uh, area where you can register for the course. And if you are interested in scheduling a coaching session with me, that's um, if you go to the menu item that says schedule, uh, that's where you'll get to the, it will walk you through how to actually make an appointment with me. Dr. Gominick, I want to thank you on behalf of the many thousands of listeners of Parkinson's Recovery Radio for taking the time to tell us uh, about your amazing, I want to say, discoveries. Uh, I think you're going to be helping many, many people realize what it's going to really take for them to get a profound relief from their symptoms. Thank you so much for being a guest on the radio show today. Robert, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been my pleasure. And that's what's happening on, you guessed it, the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all of the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact that you have taken the time to listen to this remarkable and fascinating interview with Dr. Gominick today, that indeed you are on the road to recovery. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you soon for our next amazing, remarkable interview on Parkinson's Recovery Radio.